a little teaser for what will start uh, next week. Who needs God? I hope you on Facebook could hear that and see that. Uh, but we welcome all of you to to come to bring someone who is not a Christian. This is your big moment. This is your big challenge. And those of you watching on Facebook, share the feed that people are watching and get them to ask questions. I will try and take questions live. If I don't take the question live uh, during the feed, I'll take it the next week. Uh, but I want it to be an environment where you can feel free to invite your friends. I know you're having conversations with people at times who are not Christians. I know you have questions as people who are endeavoring to, to be Christian. And this series is really going to, uh, to address it. Who needs God? After all, we are humanity, right? Well, we'll see. We'll see. Okay, starting next week. So today, we're going to finish up this series on the Lord's Prayer. Uh, this is lesson number seven. Man, you can get seven sermons out of a little, tiny little section of, uh, of the Bible. This is the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 and Luke 11. Can you recite the Lord's Prayer from memory? How about any of the kids? Not everyone at the back, but any of the kids. Have you taught your kids the Lord's Prayer? All the parents are red-faced now, yeah. So the Lord's Prayer, really easy, right? But really hard when you start thinking about it and thinking about what it, what it actually means for us. So in lesson one, we talked about persistence and this whole thing of ask, seek, knock uh, that Jesus spoke about in, in Luke and in Matthew. And he presumes that we pray. He says, when you pray, when you pray, when you pray, as if to think that we actually pray. I'm not so convinced we do pray as much as he thinks we pray, but he talks about persistence and ask and seek and knock. And he tells a couple of stories to try to motivate us to not quit, to not give up in prayer. Um, he talks about not praying a certain way. Uh, you see this in Matthew especially. You've got problems with motives. You've got problems with method in the way that people were praying, and Jesus picks on this. Um, and then he, then he starts the, the prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, and often when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we do the exact thing that we're not supposed to do with the Lord's Prayer, and we babble the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Uh, What's the rest? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Ah, they give us this day our daily bread, right? And we just, we just kind of babble the thing over and over and over again in any time, in any circumstance. Well, let's just pray the Lord's Prayer. Maybe that will work. That's the prayer that Jesus told us to pray, right? Well, not really. It's a model. He's trying to teach us how to pray. He's not saying repeat this prayer and everything's going to go well for you. So sometimes we do the exact same thing that he says not to do with the prayer. Uh, so, so we start with God, our Father who is in heaven. And we talked about the significance of this word father and a little bit about what heaven is and this whole idea of God being imminent and transcendent at the same time. Hallowed be your name. Remember who you're talking to. You're talking to God. God is set apart. God is holy. Who are you speaking with? Who are you talking to? This whole thing. Um, and then this idea, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The priorities of God are, the, are supposed to be ours. So it's not about our kingdom, it's not about our will, it's about God's. And this does not mean that we want things to be the same here as they are there. This is a mistake that we commonly make. We say, well, when we pray that, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then we want heaven here. 
This is not what's being said. We want the will of God to be done here as easy as it is done there. This is what we are praying for. It's not the same thing because there are things in the way of God's will. In heaven, his will is not resisted. His will is not impeded. His will is not thwarted by other kingdoms like ours. Uh, it's, there's no blockage there. So we want the same thing to happen here where the will of God comes to be without that kind of resistance. That's, that's what we're praying for. Uh, lesson number five, give us this day our daily bread. Did you have bread this morning? You did? Okay, well, some of us like bread on the weekends. So this idea of basic sustenance, daily bread he's talking about of all things. So it teaches this daily dependence on God. Um, and you're going to do the same thing tomorrow. If you're praying today for bread, you're going to pray tomorrow for bread, right? And we talked about the difference between praying for what you need and praying for what you want. The two are not the same. Uh, ask God today for what you need today because you don't know what tomorrow will hold. And last week, we talked about the hardest part of the prayer, in my view, uh, which is forgive us our debts or our sins or our trespasses as we forgive those who sin against us or our debtors. And at the back end of the prayer, you see, for, he says, for if you forgive... Your heavenly father will forgive you. And if you do not forgive, well, he won't forgive. So there's this problem of this kind of conditional thing of forgiveness. And this is, this is what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus models forgiveness on a constant, constant basis. And we talked about why is it so hard to forgive? Uh, number one, we misunderstand what it is. Uh, forgiveness is not ignoring or accepting or condoning or forgetting. Forgiveness is when you release your right to take personal vengeance on the person uh, that offended you. And we talked about uh, how hatred is powerful. And uh, sometimes when people are, are offended, they turn to hate because hatred gives this sense of power over people. And we saw, uh, unfortunately, another, another tragic example of this this past week in, in New Zealand, where that hatred drove that, that shooting. And, um, and we see this, and we see this, it's not the only time we have seen it, as I've said when we were praying, we've seen it here even in our own province. Um, and also instinct. We instinctively don't turn to forgiveness, do we? We instinctively turn to um, vengeance. There was a person this morning when we were praying and, um, and she, she prayed something that was quite biblical. She, she prayed, uh, Jesus says, pray for your enemies. And she prayed for the person who committed that, that act of terror. Uh, that's a very bold prayer. But this is what Jesus asked us to pray, pray for your enemies. Um, in any case, that's, that's the whole thing on forgiveness. And today we're going to finish it up with the, the end of the prayer or sort of the end of the prayer. Lead us. So it was, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, now lead us. So lead us not into, but deliver us from, for somebody else, for thine. You don't even know what a thine is. For, thi for thine is the kingdom and the, and the glory Okay, so 
I'm not going to deal with that part today. I will deal with that part in the Easter series because that part of the prayer presents us a significant problem, and you will see that when I talk about it uh, during the series on on, uh, leading up to Easter. So lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or in some uh, versions of the Bible, from the evil one. Before we get into what this means for our daily lives uh, today, we have to try and define these terms, don't we? So lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil, and it's really important that we understand what these things mean in our time, in our world, today in the 21st century. Uh, because as I said to you, and we'll, we'll start next week, there is a new atheism on the rise. Well, it's been around for a long time, really. But the new atheists, they actually do us a favor in telling us what the consequences are of a world where God does not exist. And one of those consequences is that evil is really an illusion. It's an invention at best. And I will, I will get into that more um, next week and, to, and why that is so. And I think those new atheists are right uh, when they say that. If God doesn't exist, we have a major problem in calling anything evil and in calling anything good for that matter. Uh, so what do these things mean in the 21st century? When you think of the word, we'll start with temptation. If you're talking to to someone, you know, your friend, your neighbor, your schoolmate, your classmate, your relative, whatever, and they may not necessarily believe the things that you do. What do they say if you use that word temptation? What would they say that is? Yes. Giving in to a vice. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I think you would hear that. What else would you hear? Just shout it out at me. You don't have to be so polite and raise your hand. That was very polite, though. It's very Christian. Yeah, polite, so polite. Very Canadian, so polite, yeah. Temptation. When you think of the word temptation, take your Bible glasses off for a minute and, and put your culture glasses on. You hear the word temptation. What does that mean in culture today? Somebody else. It doesn't exist, yeah. Some people would say that. Temptation, what do you mean, Temptation. Because to say the word temptation implies that a vice exists. Well, does it really? So temptation, what else do you hear? We'll take one more. Going once, going twice. No. Okay, well, you're, you're, you're on to, I think, the, the right thing uh, when you think about the word temptation. Um, there are a couple of myths about temptation that uh, even, even Christians believe. Uh, first, first one of those, it is not sin to be tempted. It is not. So sin and temptation are most of the time distinguishable in the Bible. I don't know if you know that, but it is not sin to be tempted in and of itself. Um, And we know this from even the life of Jesus, right? Uh, Did Jesus face temptation? 
He certainly did. And you don't have to know much of the Bible to know that. You know about the famous story of when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, right? And this is depicted in so many movies and television, paintings and all these kinds of things. So, so if Jesus was sinless, well, that means there's a difference between sin and temptation. The author of Hebrews, he kind of, he kind of uh, summarizes this. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. So there's a difference between being tempted and sinning. <laughs> there's a di- are you glad about that? You should be, because you're tempted often, all right? Doesn't necessarily mean you sin, though. Uh, Myth number two, it is not God who tempts. People often say, well, God is tempting me, God is tempting me, God is tempting me. Well, James, the half-brother of Jesus, he says, when tempted, no one should say, he doesn't say if tempted, by the way. He says when tempted, so you will face temptation. It's a guarantee. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. This verse actually causes people all kinds of problems. They say, well, what does it mean? You know, uh, if, if God cannot be tempted, uh, why was Jesus tempted? Does that mean Jesus was not God? Well, you got to read the context, right? And in James's context, he's kind of saying this word temptation, he implies an assent to sin as well in, in the context that he's writing. But, but for our purposes right now, God is not the tempter. He does not tempt anyone. So these are kind of myths that we believe about temptation. Uh, but if we look at it again in the context of the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He's talking about a moral thing there. He's saying that temptation is real. And temptation, if you look at it even in the life of Jesus and the, the temptation we see in the Gospel of Matthew, just a couple of chapters before this prayer, we see that Jesus was tempted and temptation would be this, this taking the, uh, you, you have an opportunity in front of you. You, you are in a situation, you are in a, a, a moment, and you are in the presence of temptation. The opportunity to commit sin, the opportunity to commit evil is right in front of you. You have it right there. Jesus had the opportunity and it was what? You know, if you're, if you're the son of God, you're hungry, why don't you take these stones and turn them into bread? And Jesus responds to that temptation. He, the devil takes him to the high, high place and he says, listen, if you're the son of God, why don't you jump? Uh, and then he takes him and he shows him all the, the splendor of the world and all the power and the glory in the world. And he says, you know, just bow down to me and worship me. These are all opportunities that Jesus had presented in front of him. And he could either take the bait or not take the bait. So temptation, basically, you're presented with the opportunity to engage in sin, to participate in evil. This is what it means. And it happens on a daily basis. You're tempted on a daily basis. Now, you may take the bait or not take the bait, but it's there. Uh, Let me give you a a great example. 
I remember uh, talking to a lady, I don't know if you ever had the experience before, but she had the experience of walking up to an ATM machine. How many of you still use ATMs? I do, yeah. Imagine, we're saying that. You still use ATMs. Now we transfer money electronically with the internet and all this, so we're starting to use ATMs even a little less than we used to. You know, it's the magic machine. You put your card in and money comes out. Imagine, right? So if she was at an ATM. She goes up to the ATM to use it to, for whatever reason, and she sees that the machine is live with somebody else's card in it. So the person had walked away for some reason from the ATM with their card in it and, it and the session was live. So she could have done whatever she wanted. She could have withdrawn a whole lot of cash from that person's account. You say, how can a person do that? Like, have they lost their, I don't know, I don't know why, but that was the situation that she was in. And, you know, some people would say, oh, this is my lucky day. God has blessed me with abundance. All I have to do is press withdraw and all this money is going to come out. It must be my lucky day. A God has blessed me and I should play the 649 today. Who knows? I might take some of this cash and play the lotto. Maybe I'll win. Like some people would think that. In her case, it was, this is a temptation. I can do that. Nobody will know. Or I cannot do that. I can withdraw the card, go up to the, to the real person, you know, at the, what do you call that, where the real people work? The teller. Yeah, that's right. That's their name. They get paid to do that. You go up to the teller and say, hey, I found a card. Someone left their card in here. And that's, that's terrible. The person must be so worried. Here, let, take the card. You see, that's, so if she doesn't take the temptation, that's probably her response. If she takes the temptation, she takes the money, and maybe she could even twist it in her head and say, well, God is blessing me. God is blessing me. You see how clever that is? So that's the difference between temptation and succumbing to the temptation. You and I have a daily opportunity and an invitation, and there's something present in front of us that, hey, you've got the bait. Do you want to take it or do you not want to take it? That's what temptation is. Uh, evil, which Jesus, you know, juxtaposes this word temptation with the word evil, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's interesting. You think about it in the 21st century, Jesus totally acknowledges that evil exists. Totally. And he totally acknowledges that the devil exists, even if you don't uh, you know, think that that's in this version of the, of the prayer. You know, some Bibles say, lead us not into temptation, deliver us from evil. Some say the evil one. Well, read the rest of the gospels. It's clear Jesus believed that the devil existed and he had just faced him in the wilderness just a couple of chapters prior. Interesting, Jesus believes in this. He believes in a, in a personal, malevolent, evil being and he believes that evil is real and that it exists. And again, this is really important today because now we have a new atheism. And the new atheism, I'll talk about it next week, tells us these things are not real. These are inventions that we have. These are illusions. There's no good. There's no evil because there is no God. We'll talk about it next week. But this is something that's fully acknowledged by Jesus. And... I think that in our culture, uh, in our world, we, we tend to, to not acknowledge this until we run into a situation 
where we see it for what it is. And we saw it uh, just a couple of days ago. That's uh, one of the many, many pictures that are on the internet. Uh, this is probably one of the mosques or outside one of the mosques where that shooting took place. And I mean, it, everyone uh, moves to this word evil when they see an act like this. Everyone feels that sense of shock and that sense of disturbance and that sense of hurt and that sense of anger, that sense of injustice when they see this kind of thing. You're not gonna get an argument from people saying there's no such thing as evil when you see something like this happen. There's really nothing like it. There's, it's very difficult to describe even with words and it jars us back into the reality that evil exists. There's a, another story, a very shocking, very disturbing story uh, in the United States in particular. Uh, and this, this took place in the state of Colorado where I was born actually. And um, this, this family, beautiful, beautiful family, um, all of them, including her, and she, she was expecting at the time, they were all murdered by this woman's husband. And he has just been sentenced to five life sentences uh, the family of the woman, her parents, asked that they spare him the death penalty because he probably would have got it. And out of mercy toward him, they asked that he would be spared that. And in turn, he pleaded guilty to murdering all these people, including his expectant wife. Say, how can that happen? That is so shocking and so disturbing and so, it's evil is what it is. It is, it is the, the, the more, it is, Def, so easily defined as being morally evil. But we don't often think about this until we're jarred into the reality that it exists because it's a very disturbing truth to acknowledge that evil is real. It's fully acknowledged by Jesus. He makes no, it's not ambiguous at all. Uh, but, the, but the good news about this is that if there is evil, then this implies the existence of good. How would you be able to say that evil is evil unless you know what good is? And, how, and who sets that standard as to what good and what evil is? Well, this implies that God actually is real and that God exists because wouldn't, wouldn't God be the one to set that standard, you see? So it implies the existence of good, and Jesus is saying, again, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. He acknowledges both of these things as very real. So when we start looking at it and we want to apply it to our lives, what are we really praying for? And this is where the problems come. Because we, we, even people in the church, have so many misconceptions about this passage and what we think we're praying for and what we actually are praying for. Um, lead us not into temptation. There are some people who think that when we pray that prayer, we're asking God to protect us from bad things. Uh, so they take the deliver us from evil part and they say, well, protect us from a terrorist shooting, protect us from such and such a happening. Um, wow, if that's what it meant, then I guess the people who were praying weren't praying properly because they didn't seem to be protected. I don't think that's what this prayer means. Uh, the deliver us from evil part 
it does not mean that you are not going to run into an evil circumstance. This can't be what it means. Uh, lead us not into temptation. People think, well, that means we're praying and we're asking God to never allow us to be in a situation where we're tempted. Well, do you think that that's true? Did Jesus not get led into the wilderness by God? Uh, Matthew chapter four, verse one, just a couple of chapters prior, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You say, well, oh boy, now you're really confusing me. What is this, a contradiction? Okay, look at the verse and look at it really, really, just slowly and simply. Lead us not into temptation. Not lead us not into the presence of any situation where we will be tempted. I mean, if that's what you think, you're in for a lot of frustration. God will at times lead you into situations where you are tempted. That's not what this prayer is teaching. He will lead you into situations and into moments where you face temptation. There is a difference between that and what Jesus is, is saying in this prayer. And I, I wanna try and break that down for you. You know, if, if God did not allow you to face temptation, you would never be strong against temptation. If he built a little Christian bubble around you so that you could kind of swim around in the world in your little Christian bubble and you would be impervious to being tempted, well, wouldn't that be wonderful and fine and dandy? And some people in the church live their lives like that. Oh, I'm never tempted, I'm never tempted. Yeah, right. Watch them for a little while and you'll see how tempted they are. No, God will at times allow a situation in your life, a wilderness experience as it were, where you face temptation. That's not what you're praying for here. You're praying that he will not lead you into it. And when you go into it, that is where it starts to become sin. That is where it starts to become the participation. You are participating now with evil and moral transgression when you go into that thing. Do you understand the difference? So don't be naive. Don't think that God is not gonna allow you to be in a situation where you're tempted. Young people, don't think that God's not gonna allow you to. He will because he wants you to learn to face it. The same way that Jesus faced temptation, you will face temptation. James, when you are tempted, in James 1.13, no one should say God is tempting me when tempted, for God cannot be tempted by evil. He does not tempt anyone, but... And here, here he, he, he gets into how this kind of moves from, okay, the presentation to participate in sin is here, but what happens, what's the cycle that happens? Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So as soon as the temptation is there and the opportunity is there, when the desire for the thing, when, the, when you take 
debate with your will and with your heart, you start a process, you start a ball rolling. You get dragged away in James's language by your own evil desire and your own enticement. And then he goes through a cycle and he uses the birth cycle, the natural birth cycle as an image to describe it. He says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. He's got a cycle there, and he uses this striking image of conception and birth and, and life to describe a process that, in his words, leads to death. Desire, sin, and ultimately death. And he's speaking of death in every sense of the word, spiritual in particular, and ultimately physical. And so he says, when you take the bait, you engage in this whole process. So when you pray the prayer, lead us not into temptation or words like it, you're saying, God, give me the strength to not take the bait. Don't lead me in such a way that I am not going into that temptation and being swallowed up by it. This is what you're saying, but deliver us from evil. Rescue me from the moment where I have the chance to start the cycle of desire and sin and death. This is what you're praying. It's not God take me out of the situation. No, God will God will put you in the situation at times and his intention is to make you stronger and to teach you to resist, not to put you in some kind of bubble. Now, fortunately, we have a we have um, Paul to break this down for us e- even more and on this we'll we'll finish and Paul says it this way. He says, no temptation in 1 Corinthians 10, no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. I'll stop for a moment there. There are some people and they say, oh, my temptation's worse than everybody else's. You don't know, you don't know what I face on a daily basis. My temptation to do this and to do this and to do this is somehow special. And well, you know, and some Christians, they get all wacky with this. They say there's some sort of curse on me or there's some sort of demon on me. And you don't understand, you don't understand. My temptation is greater than everybody else's temptation. I'm so special, I'm so special. Paul says, no, you're not. No temptation is overtaking you except what is common to mankind. What you face, everybody faces. What you face, everybody will face. It's just in a little bit of a different wrapping paper. That's all from generation to generation. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Lead us not into temptation. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. How? He seems to have a threshold to the amount of temptation that he will allow you to face. There seems to be an implication that there's a threshold here beyond what you can bear. So certainly you will face it and certainly he knows you are facing it and he will somehow, according to this verse, will have a threshold. How? But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out or in some Bibles, I love the the translation, a way of escape so that you can endure it. So when you're praying that prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, you're saying, God, I do not want to take the bait. Give me that way out, that way of escape. 
And there always will be, there always will be a way out of temptation. Always. With us, we tend to know that, but we tend to run the red light anyway. I mean, how many of you know when you're running a red light? We'll pick a really mild transgression, okay, just for your amusement. How many of you, when you're running a red light, you do know that you're breaking the law? Yes? Okay, just letting you know you are, and so am I. I run red lights all the time. So what happens in our minds when we run the red light? We see the light is, is green, but it has just turned yellow, and we're thinking to ourselves, what at that point? Be honest, those of you who are honest like me and say you run red lights. Any of you never run red lights, you can leave now. Okay, the rest of the sinners, you stay behind. You still watching on Facebook, turn it off if you've never run a red light, okay? So what happens in our minds? We say, well, the light's green, the light's yellow. What do you do? Speed up, yeah? Before you speed up, though, you look around. Who are you looking for? You're looking for your friend, yeah, the guy with the red and blue lights or the, or the car, you know, that's easily identifiable. Nowadays, they use special cars, right? These ghost cars, so unfair of the police, right? And so you look around, you look to your left, you look to your right, say, no cop around. The, the police aren't around. I'm in a rush. Doesn't look dangerous. It doesn't look like there's anybody who I'm going to hit or murder or, you know, with my car. Like, everything looks like it's okay. And what do we do? Put your foot on the gas, right? So it's the same very cycle. Now, could you, could you have decided not to? Absolutely. You could have said, listen, this, this, is, this is not a good idea. I already have so many demerit points on my, on my license. It's costing me a fortune to renew every year, you know? So, so I, I really should not do this. And mentally, you're, you're there, but you you decide, don't you? You say, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run the red light. I'm going to take the bait. And in your head, you probably, you know mentally, well, you know, maybe I'll get caught. But as far as I can tell, the chances are pretty slim that I'll get caught. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take my chances and see what happens, right? And most of the time, we get away with running the red light uh, or we get away with, you know, opening up our cell phone, which is an even worse transgression, okay? That's very, very dangerous. Don't do that. Uh, but we, we calculate, we, we process it, we analyze it. We do this very, very, very fast. And so what Paul is saying and what Jesus is telling us to pray, listen, you're going to face it. You're going to face those moments. God has a threshold there. He's very aware of it. What will you do? Will you take the way of escape that he gives you or will you run the red light? You, you can't blame God when you decide to run it. This is what James is saying. You can't blame God. You can't say God tempted you. God gave you a way out. Did you take it or didn't you? Now, here's the, here's the amazing news for people who, who are followers of Jesus. This is the amazing news. And if the, if the two guys can come back, uh, we're going to, uh, to finish with a song, and uh, you just pick one, okay, whichever one you guys want, and uh, we'll do communion at the same time uh, as we end this series. But um, here's the amazing thing for the Christ follower. The Christ follower, according to, to what we see 
in the pages of the New Testament, according to what Jesus taught, according to what we see in, in the writings of Paul and all of these things, the Christ follower is able to say no to the temptation. The Christ follower has a new way of living, a new uh, life in Christ. They have the presence of the Spirit of God within them. They have a new way to live. And that way relates primarily to what you do when you're tempted and what you do when you face an opportunity to sin. And the amazing thing is, we now have the ability to say, uh-uh, I'm not going to take the bait. I'm not going to run the proverbial red light. And this is what we, what we celebrate, really, when we take communion. It's that idea of a new life in Christ. And our sins are forgiven through the cross. And we can live in a way where we're free. It doesn't mean that you'll never sin. Okay, it doesn't mean that you're never going to make mistakes, that you're never going to look around to your left and your right and run that light. doesn't mean you won't. You still will. Hopefully you will do so less. Hopefully you won't like it as much. Hopefully your desire will start to change and you'll want to do things that please God rather than things that dishonor God. This is supposed to happen naturally for a Christian. This is the fruit of of the Holy Spirit that we start to desire the things of God just just naturally but it's an amazing thing when you know that you can't stop doing something and then all of a sudden you have the ability now all of a sudden you can stand in the face of temptation you say uh-uh you're not gonna win this time you've won all of my life on this one but you're not going to win this time because now i have a freedom in christ that i have never had uh, before and this is this is what we acknowledge it's part of what we acknowledge when we take communion i i, I sometimes during the year um, pull out this really old letter um, and this is the first evidence that we have of people taking communion. It's one of the oldest, oldest references to Christianity uh, that exists in the world. And we're very fortunate to have it. Um, it is a letter, uh, a, a political letter of sorts. And this is from um, a, a political ruler to the Emperor Trajan. And this is about 112 AD. So not that long after Jesus' execution and resurrection and so on. And he was the governor in Asia Minor at the time. And there's a letter where he asks the emperor for advice. And he says, I need you to tell me what I'm supposed to do with these, these Christians. They are guilty of the crime of Christianity. And I need to know from you, give me your wisdom as to how to treat them. And he, he needed to consult with, with, uh, with Trajan because he noticed that it was all over the place and it was all these different ages. There, there didn't seem to matter the age of them. There's children. There didn't seem to matter their class in life. Some were slaves, some were not. Didn't seem to matter if they were men or women, but they were all guilty of being Christians. And back then it was a crime. And so in his letter, he, he writes about these Christians to the emperor. And he says, this is what these Christians did. Um, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain 
old fixed day before it was light. And when they sang in alternate verses, uh, uh, in alternate verses, a hymn to Christ as to a God. Remember, this is not a Christian writing here. And they bound themselves by solemn oath. Just think about this whole thing of temptation and evil. They bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds and never to commit any fraud or theft or adultery. How could they do that? Because they had a new ability to say no to temptation and to evil, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. After which, after they had this weird meeting and sang to Christ as to a God and made this pledge with one another that they would keep living this way, after which it was their custom to separate. And then they would reassemble to take food, but food of an ordinary and of an innocent kind. And this most probably is a reference to what we're going to do right now, uh, 2,000 years later, and communion. Now back then it would have been a bigger thing. Uh, it would have been a big meal. Uh, they used to call them uh, love feasts back then. And they would, I mean, it was a big, big um kind of celebration atmosphere and there would be a big meal it would be probably at people's homes it would last for a long time etc and we just do a a very small thing but the principle of saying hey we can live differently now that we are in Christ we can say no to temptation we can say no to sin and to evil because now we have him in our lives and this we can pledge to one another and this we can celebrate together because it's not us running our hearts anymore it's him it's the christ and he is god and he enables us to do this so 